It's good to be with you. We are uh, at our church working through the books of Jonah and Nahum. So we finished our time in Jahum and, uh, Jahum. <laughs> There we go. We finished our time in Jonah, and now we're going through Nahum. We do that because, um, for those of you who are newer here, um, if you're looking for something impressive right now during the sermon time or some great uh, rhetorical ability, uh, you'll be disappointed. I'm not a flashy communicator. But what I do believe, and what we believe collectively at Maple Avenue, is that the Bible is God's Word. And so we just go through books of the Bible as our regular diet here and just try and understand them together and understand what God's saying to us. So we are in the book of Nahum today. I'd like you to open there. Uh, if you're using the Pew Bible in the rack in front of you, uh, we'll be uh, on page 782. 782. And we're going to be in Nahum chapter 2, and I'm going to read verses 3 through 10. Now, Nahum is a prophecy given about Nineveh, the same city we were talking about when we were in Jonah, the Assyrian capital. And what I'm going to read is the, destruction, the description of the destruction of Nineveh. So that's what we'll be reading today. And because it is God's word, and we like to collectively show our respect for that, let's stand for the reading of God's word. Nahum chapter 2, verses 3 through 10, on page 782. The shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal on the day he musters them. The cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. The river gates are opened. The palace melts away. Its mistress is stripped. She's carried off. Her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves and beating their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt, halt, they cry, but none turn back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasure or of the wealth of all precious things. Desolate, desolation and ruin. Hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguish is in all loins. All faces grow pale. You can be seated. Let's pray together. God, as we turn to this book of Nahum, I pray that you would give us understanding. Help us understand why you gave it both to ancient Israel, but also to us today. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. What happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun? Or fester like a sore and then run? Does it stink like rotten meat? Or crust and sugar over like a syrupy sweet? Maybe it just sags like a heavy load. Or does it explode? 
with subtle but provocative imagery, Langston Hughes in that poem called Harlem invites us to consider what happens when the presiding evil steals our hopes, steals our dreams. It raises the question that we've been looking at throughout the series in Jonah and Nahum, how do we stand in the face of evil? And those of us who who maybe identify with Langston Hughes' language know that in the face of evil, it's difficult to stand. You know, the damage done to us by a broken home and a broken marriage, sometimes you can't just get over it. When we've had our heart broken, maybe because a significant other who left us, or because of adultery or divorce. You can't just keep a stiff upper lip. If your child, or maybe you yourself, have suffered from abuse, you can't just abide by the axiom, you know, time heals all wounds. It's difficult to stand in the face of evil. We shrivel like a raisin? Do we crust over? Do we sag under the weight? It's difficult to stand in the face of evil because evil is so pervasive and so powerful, or at least it seems that way to us, so insurmountable. We identify, perhaps, with the language of the psalmist when he writes, Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? Well, if this is how we feel, or at times can feel, then we can relate to how Nineveh I should say how Israel felt during the time that Nahum was written. Because Israel, by this time, was a fairly small and insignificant nation in the table of nations. They were from the hill country. They were the backwoods people, right? They had fallen hard from their glory years of David and Solomon where they were a a player in the region. Now they're at the whim of the other nations around them. And particularly, the main superpower in that day was Assyria, whose capital was Nineveh, about which Nahum speaks. Now, the small nation, Assyria, by contrast, was large and powerful. Assyria was, was known as, as a nation with a, a, a lust for power. If it could take over more territory, it would do whatever it took to take over that territory. They were trying to advance, 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 and they would stop at nothing to be able to gain 
further conquests. So they were known for both their, uh, for their torture, both in terms of physical torture, but also the psychological torture that they would inflict on people as they would move into regions and take them over and intimidate. In fact, Assyria, when, when, uh, when they consider some of the, when they, when they list some of the most evil regimes in the history of the world, Assyria is often listed alongside, you know, Hitler or Stalin, these types of people. It was, a, it was an evil, evil nation. But they were also extremely powerful. So, um, by the time Nahum was written, Assyria had been a power for, for nearly 300 years, a superpower for much of that time. Think about it. By contrast, you know, the United States has been a superpower, really, on the world scene for only 100 years. Syria was, was a force to be reckoned with. And their capital, Nineveh, was a great city in every sense of the word. word. It seemed like it couldn't be touched. It was indestructible. It had at least two series of walls. The inner wall measured 30 meters high. And it was thick enough that they would have chariot races along the top and you could have three chariots abreast going along this wall. That's how significant the inner wall was. Their wall system, we're told, had 1,500 different towers associated with it. And just outside the outer wall, they had a deep moat that was 50 meters wide and 20 meters deep. Not to mention that this city sat along the Tigris and its various tributaries. So an army trying to advance against the city was constantly having to cross rivers and streams, making it very difficult to form any sort of attack on Nineveh. So, you have this evil empire that seems indestructible, insurmountable. And then you think about Israel. By the time of Nahum, which was written about 100, 150 years after Jonah, by that time, the northern kingdom of Israel had already been sacked, destroyed by Assyria. Many of these fellow Israelites had been carried off in chains. And Judah itself, the southern kingdom that was left, had also felt the heat of Assyria. Yes, Jerusalem had been able to stand strong. The capital had not fallen, but some of the area villages had suffered at the hands of the Assyrians. Their suffocating foul stench was daily felt by the Israelites. Perhaps it felt a little bit like it must have felt in England during the Second World War with Hitler and his foul regime breathing down their necks. Well, fast forward Less than 70 years, Nineveh, that great city that I just described, fell, never to rise again. 
It seemed unlikely, but the Medes, with a coalition of a few other armies, had waged war on Assyria and gotten to their capital. And then the rain started to come, and the floods mounted up so that the force of the water of these rivers that had been the defense of Nineveh actually broke down some of the walls, portions of the walls of Nineveh, allowing the army to flood in to the city. Well, the destruction was complete. The king and his family and all who were part of him knew that his city was falling, knew that his empire was falling, and they burned themselves on a pyre in the city. The plunder of taking all the gold and silver was so extensive that when they eventually did discover Nineveh, the archaeologists were expecting to find gold and silver because it had been such a great and wealthy city, but they found almost none. But what they did find that was surprising was a strata of ashes that went well beyond what most cities would have had. In other words, Nineveh's destruction had been complete burned to the ground, nothing left. Such a reversal, such a a turning of things upside down would have been so unexpected. Nobody could have predicted it. Fallen, fallen is Nineveh the Great. None could have seen it coming. But of course, someone did see it coming, right? Right? By inspiration of the Lord, Nahum saw it coming. He wrote prior to the fall of Nineveh, less than a century prior to the fall of Nineveh, he wrote this book. And unlike most of the prophecies where the, the, the uh, prophet just spoke the words and another scribe wrote them down, he actually recorded these works in a book himself. And he says things like, look with me at Nahum chapter 1 verse 12. Thus says Yahweh, he's saying this of Nineveh, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. And did you notice some of the things that God specifically says in the description of the fall of Nineveh that we read at the outset of the sermon? So we see in chapter 2, verse 6, The river gates are opened and the palace melts away. Got that one right. Or chapter 2, verse 9. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. It's exactly what they did. Or 2.10. Desolate. Desolation and ruin. Hearts melt, knees tremble, anguish in all loins, all faces grow pale. Nahum didn't just predict the fall of Assyria. He was specific in his prophecies. He knew, because God knew, exactly what would happen. And he gave us this description. God revealed these truths to Israel when it seemed implausible that such a reversal could ever happen. 
You see the situation they're in. They're feeling like evil rules the day. Nineveh, Assyria will never fall. We are, we are in a desperate place. Maybe we feel hopeless. Maybe we feel like, is God really in control? Okay, yes, there is a God. But all I can think about is this evil that's bearing down upon me. And the message of Nahum to that people is this. God says, what seems to have power does not have power. What seems indestructible will crumble. Though evil seems to have the upper hand, it is no match for my strength. That's the message. Which is why when you read through Nahum, the pervasive message of the book of Nahum is one of judgment and destruction. So I'm just going to kind of explain how the book holds together here. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, it begins with this, uh, this hymn to God's character. It focuses on God's character. But in focusing on that, it focuses on his power and his wrath, which he pours out against evil. And then from 1.9 through 2.2, there are these alternating messages, first given to Nineveh and then to Judah and back and forth and back and forth, where God is announcing that Nineveh will be destroyed and Judah restored. As we read, 2.3 through 10 describes the destruction, a vivid description, description of the fall of Nineveh. And then from 2.11 all the way through the end, 3.19, are a series of taunts that God issues to Nineveh. You might call it kind of a, a, a sanctified bravado or divine trash talk. For example, look at 3.11. He says to them, you will be drunken, you will go into hiding, you will seek a refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses are like fig trees with first ripe figs. If shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. Behold, your troops are women in your midst. The gates of your land are, are wide open to your enemies. Fire has devoured your bars. You see what I mean? There's just kind of a feel like that's, that's what it is for the rest of the book. Taunt after taunt, statement after statement of how weak this powerful empire actually is compared to God. I remember when I was in college, no, it wasn't college, it was after college, but I remember um, a woman who described, was describing her relationship with God, and it made an impact on me. She said, sometimes I feel like God just comes and he wraps me in his warm arms and embraces me. That's my relationship with God, that deep embrace. Now, that, that's a beautiful picture of God, and it's not an inaccurate picture of God. When you hear it, you maybe you think of like, you, you know, you kind of close your eyes, and it's spring out, there's, there's a warm breeze, the birds are chirping. Well, that is not the picture of God that we see in Nahum. In Nahum... We see, if you want a picture of God in Nahum, he is the divine warrior. He's dressed in armor and his sword is unsheathed 
and he's bearing his arm for battle. That is the picture that Nahum gives of God. But if God is at war, if that's the picture we see in Nahum, he's at war for a reason. And this is important to keep in mind. We see the reason. It's not frequent in Nahum, but it's given. So look at one seven, chapter 1, verse 7. It says, Yahweh is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Or look just a little bit ahead to verse 15 in chapter 1. The most famous verse from Nahum. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows. For never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. This is important to understand that the message of judgment on Nineveh is a message of hope for Israel. God is telling them that the evil, dark shadow of the Assyrians is going to lift. That winter is going to give way to spring. So that is how ancient Israel would have heard this book. A dark, judgment-laden book with God wielding the sword and it would have been a message of hope to them because he is their champion. He is their David defeating Goliath. He is the one who is promising to bring relief from this evil. But what does Nahum have to say to us today? I've grown up in the church and I've never heard Nahum, a series on Nahum. Probably many of you have never heard the book of Nahum preached. And I'll be honest with you about how it came about that we're preaching in Nahum. Last year, Karen and I were reading through some of the minor prophets and we were reading through Nahum together and I was at a loss for how do we understand exactly what God is saying in this book. I didn't know how I would teach it, so I said, all right, we're going to preach that, because I need to understand it. So we take this book where God is wielding a sword, and he's dressed for battle, and he's bringing judgment on people. What do we do with it? I think there are two main lessons that we can learn from it. And the first is this. I think Nahum offers hope to those of us in impossible situations. It offers hope to those of us in impossible situations. Has evil caused your heart to shrivel like a raisin, to fester like a sore, and then run? Think like rotten meat, to sag with a weight, 
or to explode. I think Nahum teaches us that the evil that has its iron claws dug deep into you is not nearly as powerful as the God of the universe. I want to say that again because I think it's important. The evil, whatever it is, it's different for each one. The evil that has its claws dug deep into you is not nearly as powerful as the God of the universe. Now, that's a nice thing to say, right? But, but it's not just a placebo. It's not just a fake drug that you can take that makes everything go away, even though it's not real. It's, it's not an opium to kind of dull the pain in your life. That's what's remarkable about being grounded in history. A book of hope like this is grounded in history. It's a fact. It's a reality. The fact that God can triumph over evil is is a reality for us that we can find true hope in. I want to give you two reasons why, why what I'm saying when I say the God of the universe is more powerful than the evil that is gripping you can be trusted. First, is the book of Nahum itself, right? So for them, they would have said the iron grip, the, the suffocating breath stench of Assyria was insurmountable. It would be unfathomable that within some of their lifetimes, Nineveh would fall. But God said that's exactly what he would do. And history has shown that God accomplished what he said he would do. But you know what's going on in a microcosm in Nahum is going on at a macro level in all of Scripture. Because at the very moment of the fall, when Adam disobeyed God and sin and death came into the world, God promised that this evil that has now been unleashed upon the world, that reigns in this world, is going to be dealt with. And so to put Nahum right here in the middle of the story is to say kind of this is paradigmatic for something bigger that God is doing as he deals with evil. And as the Old Testament unfolds, it keeps telling us things like God is going to bring in a kingdom that is just, where righteousness dwells, where there is peace and love and holiness and harmony. It's a good kingdom. And there's a king that's going to bring it. And then a man is born of a virgin. His name is Jesus, which means Yahweh saves. And the prophetic utterance over him is that he will save the people from their sins. And he comes along and the Gospel of Mark says he announces the good news. The very first good news he announces in the book of Mark is the kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, I am the David, except for so much greater than David, who's come 
to deliver the people from this giant of sin and death. Of course, as he leads his life, he doesn't talk about defeating the Romans and throwing off Roman rule. He says there's a more substantial and profound enemy he's going to deal with. He's going to deal with sin and our fractured relationship with the God of the universe. The evil within our own hearts and the death that comes with that. And though when he marched into Jerusalem, the people were ready to form an army and fight with him, instead, what he does is he goes to a cross where the rest of the scriptures explain all of the wrath of God upon sin, that the justice of God upon sinners was poured out upon him such that he cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the land goes dark as the judgment of God is poured out upon his son. He absorbs it, and because he lived a perfect life, he's able to absorb that full wrath, stand in our place. And then when the last drop of the cup of God's wrath is drunk to its dregs, he heaves a final breath, cries out, it is finished, and gives up his ghost. Well, all well and good, it could have been a nice dramatic play act, except for Jesus rose up from the dead, showing by conquering death that he actually had dealt with sin, because it was when sin came into the world that death came into the world. And the the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ has been something that skeptics have been trying to explain away since that day, and they have found nothing to stick. Because the grave itself was empty, verifiably empty, by the people who didn't want it to be empty, they admitted it was empty. And you had a group of discouraged followers of Jesus who, had, who were really nobodies by the estimation of that day, who had gone into hiding, and yet because they saw the bodily resurrected Lord They were transformed into the people, a group of people who launched the most influential religious movement in history. And Jesus appeared bodily to not just individuals, but whole groups of people who gave the same testimony of seeing the risen Lord. Jesus conquered death, which shows that he had conquered sin. And it's on the basis of what Jesus did on the cross, that we have confidence that evil ultimately does not have the last say. He ascended to heaven and he promised he is going to return again to bring in the completion of his kingdom and to utterly defeat evil. So whatever it is, it's got a stranglehold on you. It's hard to deal with. It seems unbearable. Nahum offers us hope. It offers a paradigm of how God is working that we see in a fuller way in Jesus Christ. That really evil 
is no match for God. He can defeat Nineveh. He can defeat sin and death. But when Jesus comes again, there will be a kingdom where that grip is loosed, where evil is punished and thrown into a lake of fire eternally. And for those who are in Christ, who've trusted Jesus, they get to be part of his good kingdom, an eternal kingdom, where none of this evil is. Justice will be served. There's a second lesson that Nahum teaches us. So the first one is that it offers hope to those in impossible situations. The second one is it shows the necessity of destruction for renewal. It shows us the necessity of destruction in order for God to bring about renewal. Uh, earlier, we sang the song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, right? And uh, I remember a story about that. My brother-in-law had been asked to give a lecture at an elementary school on Martin Luther. And so he went into the classroom, and he wanted to establish some sort of connection with the, it was a Christian school, and he wanted to establish some sort of connection with these, I think they were grade five, uh, grade fighters, is that how you say it? Uh, we say fifth graders. He wanted to establish this connection with these fifth graders who all were church-going kids and in a very religious town. And so he said, how many of you have heard the song, A Mighty Fortress? Not one hand went up in the air. So he tried to tease it out a little bit more and give them some lyrics, kind of hum the tune. And finally, one little girl in the corner sheepishly raises her hands. She happened to go to a Lutheran church, and she knew the song, A Mighty Fortress. We live in a generation where we don't think about the fact that God is a warrior. That there is a battle going on and that justice will be served. We, we rightly get the idea of God's warm hug, right? We understand that, which is beautiful and good. But we don't see the picture of him with his sword drawn doing something about evil. One of the phrases in that song is one that we all scratch our heads at. Lord Sabaoth, his name. Lord Sabaoth? What language is that? But just a generation ago, people knew what that phrase meant because it mattered. It means Lord of hosts or the general of the armies of heaven. And it's a name that the scriptures use in several places, of God. And a mighty fortress says it's Jesus who's that Lord Sabaoth. But why would we teach people what Lord Sabaoth means today? Because we don't talk about God as a warrior. He's not the God, of, he's not the general of the armies of heaven. That's not the picture of God we want to give. God for us has been all love and forgiveness, no wrath and justice. There was a song, a Christian song that was popular, or not, actually it wasn't that popular, but I was listening to it in my dorm room, and the, the line of the song is, the Lord is a warrior, the Lord is mighty in battle, the Lord of hosts is he. That's the chorus. And I remember having a couple Christian friends who were really godly people in my dorm room, 
And they said, I don't really like that song. I'm not comfortable with that song because that's not the God of the Bible. So I went and studied and looked, and sure enough, the Bible calls God a warrior. It calls him mighty in battle, and it calls him Lord Sabbath, Lord of hosts. The Bible is clear throughout that God is a warrior who brings judgment and justice on sinful people. So you think of uh, after, after Israel was delivered from Egypt and passed through the Red Sea, and the Red Sea covered over actual people who drowned in the Red Sea, Pharaoh and his army. They sing a song called the Song of Moses. And it's a song celebrating God's victory over people who were rebelling against him and were part of an evil kingdom and oppressors. And in Revelation, in the New Testament, the song of Moses is referenced, saying, we will sing the song of Moses. You read through the Psalms, we all like the Psalms, right? As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul longeth after thee. But there's also a lot of Psalms that talk about God's judgment and defeating his enemies and the enemies of God's appointed king. You read through the Gospels, and Jesus does all sorts of nice things. Blessed are the meek. A bruised reed I will not crush. But he actually has some very strong words about judgment. Depart from me. You workers of iniquity, I have never known you. Go into the place of fire prepared by the devil or for the devil and his angels. And then we have a story in Acts where two prominent members of the church, Ananias and Sapphira, try and deceive the Holy Spirit and lie about who they are. And God strikes both of them dead. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians, church that's not behaving in a very godly way and yet is rejoicing in communion, and he says, some of you are sick. Indeed, some of you are dying because you're not examining your own heart and repenting before taking communion. And James, in the book of James, the end of James talks about how some of you are sick, and the reason you're sick it's because there's sin in your life that's unconfessed that you're not dealing with. And so call on the elders and confess your sin. They'll anoint you and you'll be healed. It's a clear theme throughout the Bible that God is a God who does something about evil. Of course, there's, there's his discipline upon his children, and then there's his ultimate defeat of all those who are opposed to him and opposed to his kingdoms. And it's appropriate for us to think of those in different ways, but nonetheless, we see a side of God that he's doing something about sin. So why is it that we don't talk about this? Why is it that it's such a neglected theme? I was trying to think about that. I thought of three different reasons it might be. One is we in the West in the day and age that we live in, have been shielded 
from the worst kinds of evil. Now, I know in certain individuals' lives, there's been some pretty horrible things that people have had to endure. But collectively as a society, we've had a fairly comfortable life. So I think of a a conference that I was at where uh, a man named John Stott was being honored. And he was somebody who promoted kind of a global Christianity. And one of the speakers was from a country that had been uh, suffering for many years under a very cruel dictator. And he was speaking, he was an older gentleman, and he said, people tell me, they say to me, do you pray for God to change the hearts of the leaders of your country? Pray for them to come to know Christ? He said, yes, I pray for that. But I also pray for God to strike them dead. And judge them. Because he'd suffered. And he knew what evil looked like. And when we haven't had to grapple with evil in that kind of way, we don't have that longing for God's good kingdom and for God's justice to be done. I think also, we a second reason why, why we minimize these teachings is because we don't see evil for what it is in a, in a front rebellion against God and his good kingdom. So when there's evil and it affects me and it makes me sad, well, then I might get angry about evil. I don't like it because it's making me uncomfortable. It's doing something bad to me. We don't realize that evil is actually shaking our fists at the God who is love and mercy, who's good. It's an enemy rebellion meant to stop the advance of God's good kingdom. It's an affront to God. We see evil as this kind of, ah, it's not a big problem unless it bothers me. A third reason is because I think we've been trained to separate the physical from the spiritual. So at least amongst evangelical Christianity, we're we're willing to talk about hell. That if you haven't embraced Christ, trusted him as your savior in this life, then when the judgment comes, you spend eternity in hell. It's a reality we talk about. We, that's kind of in the spiritual realm, right? But when it comes to actually the physical realm, we don't like the idea that God could actually be judging people here and now. We separate those things. But do you hear the Lord's Prayer? He says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. You see how it brings the spiritual and the physical together? The eternal and the the temporal together? I think sometimes we make... Make a dichotomy. I'm happy with God, not happy with it, but I'm comfortable with the idea, or I understand the idea that God will judge people eternally, but that he could actually be judging people. You know, when we read the Old Testament, there's physical judgment on people, and people are killed. (gasps) No, God is about promoting justice, and a good kingdom, and righteousness, and peace. And sometimes that breaks into this world too. Look with me 
at Revelation chapter 6. It's on page 1031, the very end of your Bible, 1031. Revelation chapter 6. I'm going to read verses 9 and 10. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Somebody suffering in a Holocaust Holocaust death camp cannot long for freedom without at the same time longing for the Nazis to be defeated. One of the people who right now is presently imprisoned in North Korea for unjust reasons cannot long for his freedom without also longing for Kim Jong-un to be toppled. And a Christian cannot long for a just and good and righteous, peaceful kingdom of God and not long for those who resist Christ, resist the king, to be defeated. Now, we need to have a biblical balance in this, right? And, and that's why we've done this series together with Jonah, right? So we don't just go around saying, anyone who's not a Christian, we hope you die. You know, that's not how we think, right? We actually, our deepest desire, we realize the same poison that's at work in other people's and work in our own hearts, that we are sinners too, and that the mercy that's been a gift of God to us that has given us life is available to anyone, and we desire that mercy for everybody, So we long to see others repent and embrace the good King Jesus. That's our deepest desire. But in longing for that, we don't lose the balance of Scripture where we then don't also say, but if they continue in stubborn rebellion, resisting the good King Jesus, I root for them to be taken down and justice to be done. What happens to a dream deferred? What happens when evil steals our hope? Do we dry up like a raisin in the sun? Do we explode? Or do we look to Jesus and find hope that God has won a great victory in Christ? And that ultimately, evil will be dealt with and good will triumph. Every month when we have communion, the last thing we say as part of our communion services, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. This right here is a meal of hope 
that something has, God has done something about sin and death. And because we know he's done something about sin and death, we know he's coming back again. And evil will be done away with. Let's pray. God, as we approach this table, we do so well aware of the good news that evil does not have the last word. It has no power compared to the ultimate God of the universe. And we see that so beautifully in Christ who was able to conquer, not the Romans, but sin and death, assuring us that one day when he returns, all evil will be swallowed up in victory. Pray in Christ's name.